This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we're going to have a discussion on the subject of the regulative principle of worship. So, Austin, to start us off, can you please give us a definition of the regulative principle of worship? Sure. The regulative principle of worship states that Scripture prescribes or regulates, that's where we get the word regulative, regulates the permissible elements of public worship, or put it another way, the regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. So whatever is not commanded therefore is forbidden, according to the regulative principle of worship. All right, that that sounds good and clear. So to put it in my own words, basically, the regulative principle of worship simply means that the Bible is the rule for the corporate gathering of the church, and whatever is not commanded in there is not to be done when the church gathers, correct? Yes, so moving on from there, how how has this doctrine developed throughout history? And, and can you just kind of give us a historical background to the doctrine? Yeah, um, Sam Waldron's really helpful in his little pamphlet uh, on this topic, the regulative principle of worship. And uh, the first line that he writes is that the immediate historical occasion of this paragraph was the debate between Puritans and Anglicans. Okay, so uh, Puritans held to this form of worship that we just called the regulative principle of worships, worship, while Anglicans held to a form of worship that was called the normative principle of worship. So we talked about the regulative principle of worship. Scripture regulates what is permissible in worship, or Scripture regulates uh what the church is doing as they corporately gather together and worship God. Uh, More specifically, for the regulative principle, the form that the Puritans held to, whatever is not commanded, therefore, is forbidden. This is different than the opposing view, obviously. On the other hand, the normative principle of worship affirms that whatever Scripture does not prohibit is permissible. So, uh, the as as Waldron also says, the difference between these views of worship within the universal church arose out of a debate between the doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, Martin Luther and uh, some 
of his followers, and then Anglicans adopted the policy of preserving the worship of medieval Catholicism, except where it contradicted Scripture. John Calvin and the Puritans adopted the principle that said the contents of worship had to be scriptural. Um, So the Anglicans followed the normative principle. They said that we can worship uh, God in ways that Scripture tells us to, plus in ways that are not contradicted by Scripture. The Puritans uh, said that, no, we need to follow a a worship uh, model whereby every part of our worship is from the Scripture. And um, interestingly, the particular Baptist that we like to discuss so much on the podcast of the 17th century uh, and following the particular Baptist of the 17th century, they agreed with their Presbyterian brothers about the uh, Puritan doctrine, the regulative principle of worship, because both the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith affirmed this method of worship. Uh, the particular Baptists were in such agreement with their West, Westminster Presbyterian brothers that they adopted identical language into their confession of faith. And I can read what it says real quickly. Um, Chapter 22, paragraph 1 of the Second London Confession of Faith says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just good and does good unto all, and therefore is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all their heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So both the particular Baptists and uh, the Presbyterians affirmed this. And I mentioned that the Anglicans uh, held to a form of worship called the normative principle, and their confession of faith clearly outlines what they believe about this topic. Article 20 of the 39 Articles, the Anglican Confession of Faith says, The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authorities in controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. So to to summarize this uh, historical uh, development of this doctrine, the Puritan view which would also become the view of the particular Baptists and the Westminster uh, subscribers. To summarize, this view is that true worship is only that which is commanded by Scripture. Anything outside of Scripture is false worship. The Anglican view, the normative principle, is that everything commanded plus anything not explicitly forbidden is biblical worship. So, do you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I, uh, the only thing that I would really add to that is in in regard to the particular Baptist, the regulative principle um, was one of the things that they they kind of employed to to refute infant baptism, or at the very least, the regulative principle of worship is what led them to to credo Baptist baptism, because in the New Testament particular Baptists assert, and I, I think rightly so, that there is no express command to baptize the infants of believers, and thus we ought not do that within the church and the assembly of the church. It is improper and out of order. Um, and and they, they were trying to consistently apply the regular principle in regard to baptism, which is one of the reasons why that why they became credo baptists uh, apart from the differing covenant theology that kind of led them to their conclusions so moving on from that um so you've given us the history you've given us the definition can you give us some of the biblical data or evidence that this is the doctrine that we should hold to and ascribe to and how we should practice the the corporate gathering of the saints yeah, sure. Well, uh, before we start looking at some scriptures, I think, of course, we would both say that God alone defines how he will be worshipped throughout the scriptures. Um, so adding non-biblical modes of worship allows for tradition to be intermingled with the means of grace. Um, so as we begin to look at some scriptures, we see examples of tradition being intermingled with the means of grace throughout the scriptures. One place that I can think of is um, in Matthew's gospel, we have an account of the Pharisees mixing their tradition with God's commandments. Jesus says to them in Matthew 15, verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In the context, the Pharisees had just asked Jesus why his disciples did not keep the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees had implemented a ceremonial cleansing whereby each person must be outwardly washed to eliminate the possibility of outward dirtiness. Whenever the Pharisees added tradition to what God had defined as worship, Jesus rebuked them. He says in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Interestingly, in John Calvin's commentary on this passage, and we mentioned where John Calvin stood as one that held to the regulative principle, uh, Calvin writes about how God chooses the way in which he will be worshipped. Calvin says this in his commentary on this passage. For as we have said, since God chooses to be worshipped, in no other way than according to his own appointment, he cannot endure new modes of worship to be devised. As soon as men allow themselves to wander beyond the limits of the word of God, the more labor and anxiety they display in worshiping him, the heavier is the condemnation which they draw down upon themselves. For by such inventions, religion is dishonored. Before I give more examples, Jimmy, doesn't this just sound familiar to what the confession says? The imaginations of men, the devices yeah. of Satan. 
Yes, yes. I, I think that those of Westminster and, and Savoy after them and then Baptist after the Congregationalists, I think we're echoing some of the sentiments that we find in Calvin amongst also the broader Reformed community in the early parts of the Reformation. So we see uh, other examples throughout Scripture uh, whereby uh, people are rebuked for not worshiping the Lord in a way in which he has instructed them to do so. Uh, I know this is the Old Covenant, but in the book of Leviticus, we have an example of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, you know the story. They attempt to bring an offering before the Lord that the Lord had not instructed them to offer. Uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So Nadab and Abihu were punished by death because they offered incense in a way that, or fire in a way that God had not instructed them to offer. Uh, John Gill, in his commentary, writes that this fire was authored, offered either from selfish views or misguided zeal. And I think that's uh, what um, those that hold to the regulative principle are weary of, selfish views or misguided zeal in the corporate worship. Um, another example of regulative worship can be found in Joshua. The Bible says in Joshua 23, verses 6 through 8, Therefore be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Joshua is charging Israelite leaders to live and lead according to the book, the law of Moses, the Bible. Joshua specifically instructs the Israelite leaders not to depart from the book of the law of Moses, not to mix with traditions of the nations around them. Uh, the Israelites were taught by Joshua that they were not to allow pagan practices to influence how they were to worship the one true God that had been revealed through the biblical revelation. And, uh, of course, we see uh, more New Testament examples. Uh, a New Testament example can be found in Colossians of the regulative principle. In Colossians 2, 20 verses, or chapter 2, verse 20 through 23, the Bible says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So 
Again, commenting on this passage, Calvin affirms the regulative principle in his commentary. He says, therefore, that the Colossians have should have nothing to do with the ordinances. Why? Because they have died with Christ to ordinances. That is, after they died with Christ by regeneration, they were, through his kindness, set free from ordinances of men, and they have or they may not belong to them anymore. Hence, he concludes that they are by no means bound by these ordinances, which the false apostles endeavored to impose upon them. So man-made religion was being forced upon or pushed upon the Christians at Colossae. Paul doesn't want Christians to abide by unnecessary human precepts or human teachings as authoritative or a binding standard for Christian worship. Paul doesn't want the Colossians to submit to self-made religion. And then in the following chapter, as Paul is helping them to turn their attention from self-made religion and human precepts and human teachings, he tells them to set their things on things that are above, their minds on things that are above. So the Colossians have been charged to seek Christ through special revelation that has been given to them, rather than to adding to that special revelation and focusing upon human precepts. So Paul is clearly emphasizing that God sets the standard of worship and how he will be worshiped, not man. So these are a few passages that we can look at whenever we see uh, what the Bible teaches about this topic. Do you have anything else to add? No, I, I think that is a good summary of the biblical evidence for what we call the regulative principle of worship. And, and now that we've, we've seen that the Bible teaches that God is the one who orders the worship of his people, um, and as they gather together, and, and that we are to only do what it is that he has prescribed and laid out in his word. Now that we have seen that, can you help us see what this looks like in practice and give us some practical application of this doctrine? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first, by upholding this doctrine, the regulative principle of worship, it's definitely not some abstract principle that is bound up to the ivory tower. This is something that uh, affects every person, every Christian that comes to worship God. And by upholding this regulative principle of worship, churches have the prime opportunity to keep God at the center of their worship, um, allowing for non-scriptural methods of worship, as uh, the normative principle would say, something that does not contradict, allowing for such types of worship can be a very slippery slope for allowing the, as the confession says, imagination or devices of men or the suggestions of Satan to creep in or even to take preeminence over biblical worship. So for us to allow for a form of worship that is not found in the word of God, either explicitly or implicitly asserts that we know more about how to worship God than God knows how he pleases to be worshiped. So by using the word of God alone, all the methods of worship that we do, that we use, focus on God and keep him as the center of our object of praise and adoration. 
also, we see that the regulative principle of worship teaches us that our life is not about what doing what pleases us the most, what brings us the most pleasure, what we want to do. Worship is ultimately about pleasing God. Biblical worship teaches us to deny what we want to do and to worship God in the way that he wants to be worshiped. Uh, I think the Christian can be very tempted to invent man-made methods. And if we wanted to, we could get into all types of reasons why perhaps Christians can be tempted to do this, perhaps for pragmatic reasons or uh, emotions or traditions. But we can be very tempted to create man-made methods and call them worship. But the Christian must rebuke this temptation and submit to doing what pleases God. Uh, Also, we can see that the regulative principle of worship doesn't grieve the Spirit of God. Uh, This form of worship serves as a safeguard against unscriptural methods of man-made worship. The normative principle, as I mentioned, can be a slippery slope for allowing uh, contradicting methods of how God is to be worshipped. So either innocently or intentionally, explicitly, or implicitly, the Spirit of God is grieved whenever man-made worship begins to take authority over biblical worship. The regulative principle of worship allows Christians to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, Also, we see that As we worship God through the regulative principle, uh, this this biblical worship, God works through the means that are being used, the ordinary means of grace to create, transform, encourage, and strengthen his people. God is using biblical worship, the preaching of the word, prayer, the ordinances to accomplish his will in the life of his people. God has not promised that he's going to save people by using dance skits on the Lord's Day or that he is going to sanctify believers through some type of interrupted shake hands time or some some type of unnecessary general assembly right in the middle of the service. God is going to use the biblical means of grace to give his grace to people and we should regulate and incorporate these methods into our worship service because God works through them. Uh, you have any thoughts so far? I've got a few more. Go ahead and do yours, and and if if I have anything to add, I do have some things I'd like to say, but you might already have them covered. So go ahead and finish what you're going to say, and then and then I'll conclude with with some thoughts. Okay. Okay. Well. Um, Additionally, as we look at the regulative principle of worship, we see that God doesn't need specialists. God uses faithful people that are plodding along to be obedient to the means of grace and to worshiping Christ in the way that he has set forth. Our churches don't need a power team of people ripping phone books apart while they speak on a platform on the Lord's Day. We're not in need of motorcyclists that ride their bikes down the aisles on Sunday morning services that try to grasp the attention of everybody. God doesn't need this unbiblical form of evangelism. God uses faithful people that are faithfully obedient to the means of grace. And God empowers his people 
to worship him as they faithfully submit to his sovereign will that is revealed through the scriptures. So God blesses faithfulness. And God blesses his faithful people. Uh, the regulative principle of worship. These are these last two. I, these may be my last fa- my favorites. The regulative principle of worship can be practiced in any church, anywhere on the globe, no matter how much money your church has. <laughs> the persecuted church in China can worship God through the ordinary means of grace, like a church in the Bible Belt in America can. Um, throughout the regulative principle of worship, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gather together as their visible churches worship God in the same way through the means of grace. Um, I would perhaps be bold enough to say that the normative principle of worship, in a sense, cannot be entirely global because some churches may do things that other churches cannot afford to do. Um, Unbiblical man-made worship costs money. And not all churches have large financial resources to compete with churches that don't have as big of a budget. So the regulative principle of worship is global because every church can do it. Um, And then closely related, lastly, the regulative principle of worship can be practiced in any time period, any church era. Um, So this method of worship allows for Christians in our time period to unite ourselves with our brothers and sisters from the past, we can worship Christ in the same way that anyone that has held to this doctrine has. We can worship Christ in the same way that uh, the Puritans had. We can worship Christ in the same way that others in the future will, according to the regulative principle of worship. And we are united in this biblical worship. So the regulative principle it remains tried and true throughout all generations because the bible is unchanging god is unchanging biblical worship transcends all time periods and all generations so these are some of my applications that i have jimmy have any thoughts and yeah i do and these aren't necessarily applications but maybe maybe some clarifications for for people who who have some questions about some more particulars about the regulative principle and and how it is to be practiced and what actually it is talking about because i mean i know when i've said i affirm the regulative principle some people who don't understand it or have never heard this terminology or the definition before they have some questions that come up pretty quickly and and they'll ask something like either in order to try and reject it or just simply because they don't understand they'll say something to the effect well does that mean that we have to meet at a particular time or our worship service has to be a certain length or does scripture talk about these things? They'll start getting into these details. And and I think it's important for us when we're talking about the regulative principle of worship to distinguish between essential elements of a worship service and circumstantial elements of a worship service and and the gathering of the saints, as well as say that we are saying the regulative principle particularly applies to the church gathered and is not so much the to be applied in particular in in one's individual life. The normative principle does guide one's life when they depart from the corporate gathering. Whatever God um, prohibits 
We are to not do it. Whatever God commands, we are to do it. And, and that's how we are to live our lives outside the corporate gathering. But the regulative principle speaks specifically to the corporate gathering, and it speaks particularly about the essential elements of corporate worship. And, and Austin, you listed them earlier, things like the public reading of Scripture and, and the preaching of the Word corporate prayer. Some people debate this, but even the taking up of offerings could might be included in there. And I, I think it is, but but there are some that, that disagree. And also, I, I believe I said this, but the singing of songs, and if I didn't say this, but the singing of songs of praise and worship to our God, those are some of these essential elements that we find commanded within scripture, things that can be practiced throughout all time and in all places, as you said. Now, what are some of the circumstantial elements of worship? And here are things that that I would add. The time of the meeting would, would be something circumstantial. A church can, can meet at a different time than another church in the same town or, or somewhere else. Um, the, the length of the meeting is something that is circumstantial as well. A church can meet for I mean, 30 minutes or it can meet for for two and a half, three hours or all day if they so decide to do that. Um, The choice of chairs and and how the the sanctuary is to be arranged, the carpet cover and things of that nature, that is something that is circumstantial. It's not something that, that Scripture seeks to regulate, and therefore there can be some differences among or between churches. The decision to use things like electronic amplification that can also be another circumstantial application of worship. We might even say what musical instruments are used within a worship service would would fit under circumstantial. Again, there is going to be some that disagree with that and believe that we aren't to use instrumentation, and and there's a debate to be had there. But if instruments are permissible, um, then then it would be circumstantial as to what instruments are played. also, the use of a bulletin, the use of a hymnal or screens or things like that. These all are some examples. I'm sure we could list many more um, or even, I mean, another one in our time right now um, amid COVID, you might be required to meet outside of a church building. That would be circumstantial, circumstantial whether to meet outside or to meet inside during this time. That would be something that circumstances would guide and direct how we do it. Do you have anything to add to that point? I, I have some other stuff to talk about. Well, too. Well, yeah, let's, I just want to get, ask you to give us an example. Then you've distinguished importantly between uh, essential and circumstantial parts of the gathering. Uh, can you give us an example of something that would be essential that um or something that could not be placed in the regulative worship of the church that that would be considered not circumstantial something that would break the regulative principle of worship i i think you gave an example earlier kind of in passing when you talked about almost skits or or interpretive dance or a play or something like that I mean, having a basketball court on on the platform and shooting hoops while you you try to make a point, I, I believe that would be a violation of the regulative principle. Um, 
And and I think it is important for us to say that within the regulative principle, there is a spectrum. There are some that are more strict and, and, and see less things to be included as elements in the church and some that are, are less strict. And there's going to be some differences between churches on how exactly the principle is going to be um, practiced. Um, and, and I think that's that's fine. That doesn't actually disprove that there is a principle um, to be upheld, but it does say that we should be cautious on 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 how we go about judging other churches and other Christians on exactly how they carry out the regulative principle of worship. But I'd say some like queer examples would be something like a skit during the service, um, zip lining to to the stage. That'd be a more outlandish one. Um, another more subtle violation might be. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't feel like getting in trouble necessarily, but I mean, something like I would say if it's in the actual service and it's not separate from it, but like singing birthdays could be a violation of the regular principle or doing the Pledge of Allegiance during a worship service would be a violation of the regulative principle. Um you could also, I mean, and this would be my opinion, and this would be where where some might disagree with me. I would say child dedications would be a violation of the regulative principle. We we don't see that within Scripture, and and as a Baptist, I I don't believe in infant baptism, um, and I believe there are other ways for a church to express its support for a parent to raise their child in the fear and admission admonition of the Lord. And and if you do have a separate time of like announcements after the service is concluded or before it is officially started, you can announce when a child's born or something like that if you want to. But I, I do think that we need to be careful when we actually are deliberately seeking to worship God together as a corporate church to not include those things which which are outside of the script of outside of what scripture regulates for that time of corporate worship. And and I think it's also important, I mean, since we're on this subject, not all elements that are essential um, are required to be practiced every service. Um, for example, you're not going to be, it's very unlikely anyways, that you will be baptizing people every corporate worship service. I, I think there's a debate to be had on the frequency of when the Lord's Supper is to be practiced. Um, I would prefer more often rather than than less often, but I, I think it's it can be debated. It's a legitimate debate to have. I prefer more frequently, and I think the arguments against more frequently are very, very weak. And and during this time, thinking about COVID, some some churches and some states are asking that that Christian some are demanding, some are asking that Christians not sing during corporate worship. And and I would think that it would be permissible for a church to postpone singing during this time. Now I, I honestly don't think the state has the right to regulate worship, but I mean if they do put out information that says that it, it, it does increase the risk of, of transmission. Um, and again, talking about COVID, it's likely going to get us in some trouble because there's disagreement among Christians. So I ask if you disagree with me to treat me charitably in it, since my church has actually 
had an outbreak of COVID and I myself have had COVID. So treat me with charity, even if you think what I'm saying is wrong and dumb and 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 maybe you even think it's cowardly. Um, I disagree and that's fine. We can disagree with that and be brothers. But the the broader point is that the regulative principle mainly states what can be done in corporate worship and and not necessarily is asserting that all those things that can be done must be done. Anything to add, Austin? No, do you have final things you wanted to move on to? I think the the last thing to talk about, and, and you and I are both in this situation, I believe there are many pastors of similar conviction to us. You You go to a church, and let's say they practice something that you believe is a violation of the regulative principle. Is this something that you go into and change right away? And, and the way I would answer that question, it depends on, on what is being done. So, for example, uh, Jake talked about special music. Um, I, I don't see, I, I, I agree with him in, in terms of in the New Testament, we don't see anything like that. And, and, and I would prefer it not be a thing. However, if it's a tradition that has been brought into a church, I do not see that as a tradition that is nearly as harmful as something else that could be being done during a service. And it may not be the thing that you want to go in and just eliminate entirely right off the bat and just say no more special music. So I, I'd say that might be an area in which you you give it time, you preach the word faithfully, especially if you're new to the congregation, and, and you show them that your agenda is to be regulated by the word of God and not by your own personal preference. And, and in time, you change that. However, if they are, I mean, this is completely outlandish, outlandish and not very likely to actually happen. But if they're like making sacrifices to something in the worship service <laughs> or, or lighting incense or, or, or things of that nature and bringing in old covenant ceremonial practices into the New Testament corporate worship gathering, then 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 you might say you might say we need to change this um, or 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 applauding certain members of the congregation during the church service and stuff like that and having times of that, that's something that you might want to change more quickly. If, if they are actually disobeying the moral law of, of the New Testament or of the Bible, then yeah, you might want, you should change that right away um, and, and as quickly as possible. But I think it's important for us as pastors, especially young pastors, going into new situations to realize that the church was there before we got there, and they will likely be there after we die, and and realize that many of the things that you're encountering that you may disagree with have been encultured into that church for maybe decades, depending on how old your church is, it may be centuries. And, and I think it's important to be careful and realize that just because a church does not practice the regulative principle to the degree that you think they should does not necessarily mean that that church is dead and you should put Ichabob on the doors and, and say God is not here. Instead, you should be patient, you should pray, you should meet with your people, you should teach, you should preach the word, and patiently seek to shepherd them and guide them into a more biblical practice. Um, 
and as Austin and I would understand it to a practice of the regular principle in the corporate gathering. Do you have anything to add or, or, or ask? I do want to just offer this encouragement of uh, the transition that I was able to make in our congregation. Um, and I don't say this to boast of myself. I say this to boast in the Lord and what he did. Um, one thing that I am one of these pastors that Jimmy's describing, a young pastor that has came to a church that has been established for quite some time. One thing that our church was doing when I first came was about 15 minutes into the service, they would stop and shake hands with each other. And it would take maybe 10 minutes to get them to stop shaking hands and then come back and sit down and start worshiping again. And during the coronavirus pandemic, we saw fit and thought it would be smart to quit shaking hands. And I used it as an opportunity to, uh, I was waiting for the change to happen. I was trying to be patient to bring about that change. I used it as an opportunity to instruct some of the people in the church that um, by cutting this time out and by replacing it with a more biblical form of worship, um, we're not only worshiping God in a more pleasing way in which he has instructed us, but we are giving more opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed throughout our worship service. So when we cut out our shake hand time right in the middle of our service, uh, we replaced it with a corporate New Testament scripture reading, which our people have really enjoyed as we have worshiped the Lord by reading the Bible aloud together. And then uh, additionally, now we have an Old Testament scripture reading. So um, it is doable, uh, as, as Jimmy was encouraging, be patient. Uh, and uh, recognize what is essential, what needs to be changed right away, and recognize some things that can wait. Um, Jimmy and I, I think we would both affirm that we don't say this to wag fingers at anybody that uh, disagrees with us in the slightest way. We desire for uh, our churches to worship God in the way that is the most biblical way that uh, we we see fit as leaders of our congregations. and. Um, we want this to come about because we want God to work through our church through the means of grace that he has promised that he will work through. So you have any final encouragements, Jimmy, before we sign off? Yeah, piggybacking off of you, I mean, in, in coming to a church with established traditions that's been here far longer than I've been alive, one of the traditions I mentioned earlier was that at the beginning of the corporate worship service— um, after the prayer time, after stuff like that, they would sing birthdays and anniversaries um, in the middle of the, of the service. And and one thing I did with with COVID is I placed that rather than in the middle of the service, I placed it at what might be considered the very beginning, and between it and what I consider the worship service proper there's a brief pause in the prayer. The the um, invocation and the prayer takes place after it so that there is a separation between the singing of the birthdays and anniversaries and the actual church worship service proper. And and some might say that was a weak, wimpy way out, but I, I honestly think that, in in my opinion, not to pat myself on the back, but and then I didn't get that 
by myself. That was I read about it in a book and I've heard it suggested before on subtle ways to transition out of things and, and to to not throw everyone off in disarray and just stopping flat. Um, but that's kind of how I dealt with a situation that that I believe to be a violation of the regular principle while also trying to 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 love my congregation in it and say it's not really wrong to sing birthdays for each other or anniversaries and it's great that we do that and we love each other in that way but at the same time there is a time for that and then there is a time for us to gather and assemble together with the intentional purpose of worshiping God as a congregation. And that brief separation, I know, has at the very least put my conscience at ease, and and maybe it has put conscience put the consciences of more sensitive members, or more members in my church that are more sensitive to this principle that we've been discussing. So that's about my two cents. And, and that's an example of, of the Lord doing work in my congregation and a transition to what I would say is a more biblical approach to the corporate gathering and, and the saints affirming and being okay with that here at Vista Baptist Church. Very good. Very good. Well, um, we hope that this conversation has caused you cons- to consider um, a topic that perhaps you have never thought about before. Or if you're a pastor, I hope that you would consider uh, as your church's corporate leader or one of your church's corporate leaders as an elder to consider what the Bible teaches about how God is to be worshipped. So we hope and pray that this conversation has been edifying to you. Grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to The Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.